I never, ever, ever claim to be a scientist no. or an archaeologist. Journalist. I don't see, yeah, journalist. I don't see how I yeah. can be a false one. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a journalist yeah. and I'm a true journalist. And that's, what, and that's what I do. But it's a very easy way to dismiss uh, interest in, in my work. Of course, this idea is upsetting to the so-called experts who insist that the only humans who existed during the Ice Age were simple hunter-gatherers. That automatically makes me enemy number one to archaeologists. Why not just say, we don't know? This is a spectacular mystery, and leave it at that. It's my job to offer an alternative point of view. Perhaps there's been a forgotten episode in human history, but perhaps the extremely defensive, arrogant, and patronizing attitude of mainstream academia is stopping us from considering that possibility trying to overthrow the paradigm of history. Um, yes, this is another episode of Hot Boxing. I'm Mike Tyson. This is Sebastian Joseph Day, and we have here Graham Hancock. Yes. Hi, and I'm Graham Hancock, and it's yes, nice to Graham. be with you guys. We're all here, we're all um, we're on ears. We're talking about the ancient apocalypse. You have people talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people talking. Well, that's my new TV series on, on, on Netflix. I viewed it before I came here, yeah. Thank you for doing that. I viewed thank, so you, thank you for doing that. Yeah, it's getting, uh, it's, it's, quite, it's quite hot. This is what I wanted to know. Archaeologists, that's the word? Archaeologists, Archaeologists. Yes. How can they tell something a tree is 10,000 years old? Okay, so there's the, the most commonly used dating method is carbon dating, mm. and, and uh, particularly radiocarbon. And uh, what happens after an organism dies is that the amount of carbon in its remains reduce at a steady rate. So anything over than 50,000 years old is no use for carbon dating. But anything up to 50,000 years old, they can say how old that, they can say how old that piece of, and it only works on organic materials. So how, how did they say, um, Lucy is three million years old. Well, that's based more on there's there's no direct objective dating apart from looking at the stratum of the Earth in which she was in which she was dug up. It's more it's more based on notions about the evolution of the human species, uh, and and Lucy was supposedly our first upright walking ancestor. Uh, erectus. And then there's Homo erectus, which is a fascinating creature, which is a they were they were big. They were about six feet tall. Mm-hmm. They roamed all over the earth. They sailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got to remote remote islands, mm-hmm. uh, and we're talking anything from three hundred thousand, four hundred, maybe even five hundred, six hundred thousand years ago, down to you know down to relatively quite recently. They probably go back a million years. Homo, Homo erectus, um, erect man. Uh, or upright man. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not erect, but yes. Uh, I think. I think in that name, they. I think in that name, they managed to sort of tune into something f- fundamental about the human species. <laughs> but, but anyway, there was erect man. How long man. do you think we were on our knees before we got erectus? Say again. How long do you think we were on our knees before we became? Erectus? Oh, we were not on our knees. We were not on our knees before Erectus. They were already upright, upright walking creatures. Lucy was an upright walking creature. Let's say Erectus goes back a million years. Lucy goes back three million years. Um, the last common ancestor with the chimpanzee 
if you accept the, you know, the general view of evolution is about six million years ago. So there was a divergence and one line led towards human beings and the other line led into the, the great apes. I don't know. That's too um, complex for me to even believe or not to believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, what, it's the story that's told. I think the thing so to understand is a lot, about, a lot about prehistory and the deep and remote past is it is, it is a narrative where, where people are doing their best with very limited material to reconstruct the story of, of, of our past. Yeah. I just think people just want to believe they know everything, but we know nothing. I think that's the best position to take is that we is that we know nothing and anything we find out is likely to only be true for a while and then something else will be find out which replaces it. Everything shifts and changes, nothing is fixed in one place and that's uh, that's particularly true of the of the human past. Uh, is that we keep on extending it back in time. So okay, there was Lucy there was Homo erectus. Mm -hmm. Then you have the first anatomically modern humans and the, uh, that have so far been found. And the first anatomically modern humans that have been found are from Ethiopia, 196,000 years old, and from Morocco, uh, about 300,000 years old. So these are creatures which looked exactly like us, had the same size of brain, so far as we know, had all the capacities and abilities that we have, and, and they've been around, anatomically modern humans have been around on the planet for at least 300,000 years, judging from, from the Moroccan evidence. And then you've got these other creatures, the, the, the so-called Denisovans, named after a particular cave in, in Siberia, and the Neanderthals, who've had a bad rap generally down the ages. The word Neanderthal is used as an insult, but it's become clear now that the Neanderthals were, were not stupid. They, mm -hmm. were, they were intelligent. They were, they were sensitive. They did art. They may well have taught the ancestors of anatomically modern humans how to do art, how to do the great cave art that we find in, in many different countries. In France. France, for example, but, but, but again, all over the world, also, also South Africa, there's fantastically ancient rock and cave art in, in South Africa as, as well. So we have a very complicated story. We have lots of relatives. We have, we have the Neanderthals, we have the Denisovans, we have anatomically modern humans, who, and, and, and everybody's mixed together, and people carry Neanderthal genes and Denisovan genes today, and it's, we're, we're a hybrid species. That's, that's fundamentally what we are. Established titles is a fun way to preserve the natural woodlands of Scotland. It is a project based on a historic Scottish custom where landowners are referred to as lairds or lords and ladies in English. Title packs give you at least one square foot of dedicated land on a private estate in Edelston, Scotland, and an official certificate with a crest. Your certificate features a unique plot number with which you can see the exact location of your land. Establish titles, plant a tree with every order, and work with global charities. One tree planted and trees for the future to support global reforestation efforts. Cool perks are you could officially change your prefix of your name to Lord or Lady and get it on your credit card, plane, tickets, or whatever you want. They even have couple packs that come with adjoining plots of land. Ooh, the first 200 people purchasing title packs using our link will effectively be next to our plot within a few minutes of walking. 
Established Titles makes an amazing last-minute gift, and they are actually running a Black Friday sale, their biggest sale of the year. Plus, if you use the code HOTBOXING, you get an additional 10% off. Go to EstablishedTitles.com slash HOTBOXING to get your gifts now and help support the channel. Again, that's EstablishedTitles.com slash HOTBOXING for your additional 10% off. Kamikoto make great high-quality Japanese steel kitchen knives using traditional technology from Japan. Kamikoto only uses steel source from mills in Japan. Each blade is crafted using techniques that each been honed and perfected by generations of knifesmiths. Each Kamikoto knives goes through a rigorous 19-step process that takes several years from start to finish to complete. Each knife is individually inspected and comes with a lifetime guarantee. Each knife comes in a heavy-duty ashwood box. This makes Kamikoto a great gift because of the wooden box the knives are presented in. The product range features a vast array of Japanese steel knives, such as a three-piece Kenpeki knife set, which includes a Nakiri vegetable knife, which is seven inches long, the slicing knife, which is 8.5 inches long, and the utility knife, which is five inches long. The Kamikoto Senteku blade is seven inches long. All the blades and the handles have satin finish for a subtle yet stunning luster. Because of their single bevel edge, Kamikoto knives can achieve an unbelievable sharp edge. You just can't get one with other knives. They cut through your steak like butter. You can maintain the edge of your blades with the Kamikoto sharpening whetstones. Kamikoto knives are used by several chefs working at Michelin star restaurants all over the world. Kamikoto is now running a Black Friday sale and is offering our viewers an extra $50 off on any purchase with a discount code HOTBOXING. On top of a special offers, go to kamikoto.com slash hotboxing to get your knife set. That's kamikoto.com slash hotboxing for extra $50 off any purchase. <laughs> I think the most interesting thing that, that caught my eye in that documentary was when you were on that island in between Italy and Malta. 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 Yeah. And Giganta? Gigantia. Yeah, Gigantia is, is, is what used to be thought to be the oldest what they call megalithic structures. So when they say megalithic, they, they literally means big stones. Mm -hmm. And, it's, and, and uh, you have blocks of stone that weigh, you know, 100 tons in there. Um, and it's a, it, it, it's, it's a, it is literally a giant thing. And the, and the tradition is that it was built by giants. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it turns out it's not the oldest structure. Mm -hmm. It used to be for, for, for really a long time, Gigantia was thought to be the oldest megalithic structure on Earth, that it was thought to be uh, 6,000 years old. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly we find Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, which is mm -hmm. 11 and a half thousand years old, 11,600 mm -hmm. years old, which just pushes the timeline back 5,000 5, years to when human beings were capable of organizing themselves and mobilizing the necessary skills mm -hmm. in, order to, in order to create uh, these fantastic works of architecture. There, there are pillars at Gobekli Tepe, we're looking at some, some there in the previous slide, that, that, um, that one, the, <laughs> yeah, that, that those mm -hmm. go left, those, those, those 
those two pillars there weigh about 20 tons each. And they're in what's called Enclosure D in Gobekli Tepe. And that's the oldest enclosure that's so far been excavated. And it dates to 11,600 years old. Uh, the thing is that there's many other enclosures in Gobekli Tepe that have not been excavated. They're mm. still under the ground. We know they're there. We'll pause on that slide because I have something to say about it. We know that they're there mm -hmm. because of ground-penetrating radar. You can look beneath the earth and you can see what's down there without actually getting in and actually digging it up. And, mm. and these kind of enclosures that we're seeing excavated here, there's dozens more of them under the ground in Gobekli Tepe awaiting excavation. That pillar is in that same very ancient enclosure, enclosure D. It's pillar number they 43. They couldn't find the burial chambers down there? They've not they found anybody buried, buried there. Um, the, uh, not, not, not at all. Although there does seem to have been some kind of cult of death. Many of these, many of these places are associated with the mystery of death. Mm. And what? And this is a question that every human being asks herself or himself: What happens to me when I die? And that's a question that our ancestors were. Every Gilgamesh story was all about all about death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the first book ever written was about fear of death. Yeah, mm. fear of death. It's just a fundamental. It's a fundamental human characteristic. And some ancient cultures, like this one, like the ancient Egyptians, explored that mystery and, and began to ask themselves the question: Well, actually, what does happen? Does the light just go out and there's nothing left of our consciousness, or or does consciousness survive Evolve. death? And the ancient Egyptians were sure that consciousness survives death and that physical life is the opportunity to evolve mm. our consciousness. Uh, and then, and, and I mean, in the in the ancient Egyptian system, it's rather it's rather eerie. There's a, there's a judgment scene. Uh, I, I guess we know where, where the Christians got the idea of the Day of Judgment from. There's, there's the, the, the soul is brought into a, a chamber, which is called the Hall of Mart. The goddess Mart was the goddess of truth and justice and cosmic harmony. Mm -hmm. The god Osiris sits at the end of that hall, and it's the judgment hall. And the soul is brought in there, and then symbolically... The, the soul of the individual represented as that individual's heart is weighed in the scales against the feather of truth and harmony and cosmic justice. Mm. And the question is, you were given the extraordinary opportunity of life in a human body. What, what did you do with it? Yeah, did, so, you, did you use it or did you waste it? So the, so, so the heart and the opposite is essentially sin, right? What the Christians would look at as they the sin. They would probably look at it as sin. And that, mm -hmm. but the, the scene is complicated because around the walls of the chamber sit 42, they're called the 42 negative assessors. And they ask the deceased 42 questions. And they're all to do with moral behavior. Uh, and and uh, ideally, you should be able to answer no to them, every one of them, although I've yet to meet the human being who could answer no to every single moral, moral lapse. Yeah. Um, but, but then there's another issue, which is, this, which is this issue of the precious gift of life and what did you, and what did you do with it. And it seems to me that that is, that is fundamentally what's being tested. We're giving an opportunity to live this, this rich and full life in a human body, to be faced with challenges, to be faced with choices, mm -hmm. What choices Adversity. do we make? Our choices mm -hmm. define us. Adversity. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, I, I honestly believe that consciousness is one of the fundamental aspects of the universe, that it's not limited to bodies, mm -hmm. that it, but, but that it can immerse itself in bodies. And I think we're in a kind of 
I, I can't prove this, but it, going with the, the ancient Egyptian view that we're in a kind of theater of experience here where we have the opportunity to learn and to grow and develop, but, and not all of us take that opportunity. You know, many lives, are, many lives are wasted and our society invests a lot in encouraging people to, to, to waste their lives, just to pursue uh, goods and services, just mm -hmm. to, 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 to define ourselves by how much we own and how much money we make and mm. the possessions that we surround ourselves with. And all of this is completely, it, it, it may be nice, but it's completely fucking trivial. Mm -hmm. there's, there's nothing lasting about it. It all just fades away and it's, and it's, and it, and it's gone. So did we get you know, did we get something meaningful and useful out of the life we live? And I think that that is the opportunity we're given is to make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes, but do we learn from those mistakes? Mm. Do we integrate them into our, into our behavior? Unlock your confidence with the performance package 4.0 inside. You'll find the holy grail of men's grooming items. Michael Myers sure is scary, but the last thing you need is to be hairy this Halloween. Luckily, our friends at Manscaped launched their fourth generation performance package to make sure your pumpkins get the ultimate carving experience on this spooky day. Ugh. Unlock your confidence with the performance package 4.0. Inside, you'll find the holy grail of men grooming items. It's a full moon out there. Or should I say it's a full moon out and the werewolf in your pants is howling. Oh, it's time to tackle that problem with the lawnmower. 4.0. That's my lawnmower sound. Their finely tuned pube products feature a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents. Ugh. Thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology, the Lawnmower 4.0 is easily the greatest ball trimmer whoa, on the planet. Oh, did I mention this trimmer is waterproof too, Mike? Wow, this trimmer is a, is a shower essential, buddy. Wow, the Performance Package 4.0 also includes a weed whacker, a nose and ear hair trimmer that provides proprietary skin-safe technology that helps prevent snicks, snags, and tugs. Seal the deal with Manscaped's liquid formulations. Ooh, their Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner will make sure your pumpkin stays fresh. Trust me when I say this, fellas. Your balls will be thankful. Also, if you're looking like Wolverine and haven't cut your nails recently, be sure to look into the Shears 2.0 nail kit. Manscaped also launched their new body buffer, 100% antibacterial body scrubber. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their performance package 4.0, the Manscaped boxes and the, sh and the shed travel bag. Bring your comfort and boxes to another level. Get 20% off free shipping with the code HOTBOXING at manscaped.com. Again, that's 20% off plus free shipping with the code HOTBOXING at manscaped.com. Say trick or treat to your beautiful new Halloweeny with Manscaped. So that's pillar 43, and it so happens that um, it, it, the creatures upon it, uh, colleagues of mine have worked very, very hard on this, and they seem to be constellation diagrams, mm. and they show that 
disc in the middle on the wing of the vulture mm -hmm. represents the sun, and the vulture represents the constellation that we call Sagittarius. Uh, and oh. and um, it, this this defines a date. This this actually that that con combination of the sun and Sagittarius and mm -hmm. the surrounding constellations uh, only occurs twice in twenty six thousand years. And this defines the date of around twelve thousand eight hundred years ago, which is about a thousand years before Gobekli Tepe was built. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, it was very important to them. Do you think these people understood time? Understood time? Yes, I think they did. I think anything that we can understand, they understood. I, I would believe they tell time different than we do. Um, it's interesting that around the world, the the, the division of, of the day into hours, into 24 hours, and into minutes and into seconds is pretty universal. Um, well, listen, um, before Jesus was... How did Alexander the Great tell his age? How did he know he was 32? Well, because a year passes, and you're no, one, and another no, year passes. True. No, okay. Because um, 365 days out of the year wasn't born until Julius Caesar was in play. Yeah. He said 365 days would be a year. Yeah. So before Julius Caesar was born, how did we tell how old we were? Well, there are certain regularities. There's the there's the, the two solstices, the day when the sun rises furthest north of east. The sun makes a sort of pendulum swing along the horizon. At the at the equinox, it's rising perfectly due east. If you're at the at the at the winter solstice, it's rising as far south of east as it can possibly rise. At the summer solstice, it's rising as far north of east as it can possibly rise. If you're in the in the northern hemisphere, so there, the. the the celestial surroundings actually do provide a time marker, and the number of days between one winter solstice and another winter solstice is 365 and a quarter days. So Julius Caesar may have codified that, he may have recognized it, but it's actually defined by the universe and the solar system in which we live. It is 365 and a quarter days from so one winter solstice to, to, to another. Um, 300 years before Christ, it was the same thing. I'm saying it was the same thing, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah definitely. Def definitely the same thing. I don't think the length of the day or the notion that there were 365 days in the year um, has has changed because that is that is a fact of our environment. It's not. It's it's something that human beings can recognize and they can put it in. They can formalize it. And Julius Caesar certainly did that, and he and he codified a calendar uh, based on that. But but it's based on observations of the heavens. Another thing about this documentary that I loved is how you highlighted the fact that these people were just as smart just as smart, just as, as, us. smart as, we, as us now do you believe that there were giant people back then cuz some of these some of these buildings are massive like how in the world could that and many be? of the traditions around the world speak of giants being mm -hmm. involved in the creation of these buildings i i don't go with that 100% mm -hmm. and, and and part of part of the reason is that i'm i'm not fundamentally interested in giant people okay unless they have giant intellects. Yeah. Unless they have giant hearts. Mm -hmm. Unless white, they have giant souls. White, mm -hmm. giant if if they're if they're just big white, lumps of meat no, yeah. <laughs> with no heart and no soul, yeah. then then who gives a fuck? You know, they're no, they're, yeah, they're, they're 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 pretty boring. And I, I I'm I'm more when I when I see these traditions that speak of giants mm -hmm. from the ancient past, I think they're talking more about intellectual giants. There are some very large human remains up to seven eight feet tall. Yeah, those are China, that's, there's some European fountain China. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Cholula, they were saying that giants, I remember... The well, story of Cholula is that it was built by giants. Giants, yeah, that it was built yeah. by giants. And the story of Gigantia is yeah, that it was built, built by, by giants. giants. 
But in later times, that would be the kind of conclusion you would come to when you look at it. And there's no doubt if you look at the brilliance of the work and the architecture and the achievement, that giant intellects Caucasian were at work. Caucasian giant found a giant. I'm I'm uh, I, I'm yet to be I'm yet to be excited by the mere fact of physical giants. Yes, they existed. Maybe they did stuff, but if they, if what they did wasn't interesting, I I, I, I don't think I'm not they that laughed on the legs. They couldn't move fast, probably. Yeah, I think the, the fund, fundamentally the size of a human being doesn't matter. It's what it's what that person does with their life. It's mm -hmm. how they use their minds. Yeah. It's how it's how we relate to other human beings. That's what matters. And and you know, size like all these other labels is, is just that. that I, I mean, that image on the right is just. Got to be faked. Faked. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just got to be faked. Call it out. I'm sorry. It's faked. There, 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 there. That's the trouble. I mean, the internet is a blessing and a curse. It's dangerous. It's a poison chalice. It, it gives so us. Much. It gives us fantastic gifts of sharing knowledge and information, but it's full of bullshit, and full of lies, and full of and full of nonsense. So I think it's great to have the internet there, but we have to be very discerning, and we have to. We have to look to the what is the source of this, and is this is this is the source of this a person that I would believe if that person spoke to me face mm -hmm. to face? Mm -hmm. We need to ask ourselves that question. Photographs are so easily manipulated, manipulated and mocked up. So why, so why do archaeologists try to combat all the research and all the fact that you found? In your process and all in all in all the things that you've done. Well, in a way, it's the other way. It's the other way round because the 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 view of history and of prehistory mm -hmm. that we receive almost with our mother's milk mm. and that is taught to us while we're in school mm -hmm. and that is taught to us in university and that the vast majority of the media buy into mm -hmm. is the view that has been prepared and presented by archaeologists and historians, mm -hmm. that they dominate the field mm -hmm. in this area. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'm actually coming back at them and yeah. saying, I think they're there are anomalies. I think there are problems that your narrative doesn't explain, yeah. uh, particularly regarding the origins of civilization. There are anomalies that your narrative doesn't explain, and let's see if there's a if there's another narrative that can be there. Now, if if things were different, mm -hmm. uh, archaeologists and historians would would say, well, perhaps this is an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. Let's look at it. But what they do instead is respond by trying to destroy the idea, and often. They respond by trying to destroy the idea in very lazy ways. Mm -hmm. So, so one of the laziest ways to to destroy the idea is to brand me as a as a pseudo scientist or a pseudo archaeologist. Well, the word pseudo means false. Yes. Okay. So, so they say this guy is a false archaeologist or a false scientist. But I never, ever, ever claim to be a scientist no. or an archaeologist, and therefore I don't see. Yeah, journalist. I don't see how I yeah. can be a false one. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a journalist, yeah. and I'm a true journalist, yeah. and that's what and that's what I do. But it's a very easy way to dismiss uh, interest in in my work. Is just to say, oh, he's a pseudoscientist, and that, and I, I have to say this: that is that is what is on Wikipedia. If somebody hears my name for the first time and think, oh, that might be interesting, the first place they're going to go is they're going to go to Wikipedia mm -hmm. and they're going to see what Wikipedia says about Hancock. And Wikipedia basically trashes my work and mm -hmm. says that Hancock is a pseudoscientist and promotes pseudoscientific theories, mm -hmm. but never actually says what those are. 
yeah. or engage. It's just an easy dismissal. Um, sometimes I'm 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 accused of I'm accused of uh, of being a, a white supremacist. Um, this is this is another very easy way. This is a sort of woke culture, you know, which is. <laughs> Which the, m many of my critics, there, there are You're missing. calling out the races. Hmm? You're calling out the races. I think I'm calling out the races. You are. And, yeah. and, and, you and, are. And, and, you know what archaeologists are. Yeah, there are a lot of racists. Um, you know that weighs heavy on their conscience, so they so they call me a racist. But these are ways of these are ways of putting me down without actually engaging with my work. Mm -hmm. And there's been very little direct engagement with my work by archaeologists. It's rather let's just get rid of this guy. And that's why this series on Netflix is a blessing for <laughs> yeah, me because, sure. you know, there's the biggest television platform in the world mm -hmm. and, and they're, they're, they're putting my evidence out to millions and millions of people. And it's going to make it harder for archaeologists just to dismiss that. Exactly. And, it, and, and, it, and it opens the door for, 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 for anybody who's curious and intelligent and willing to investigate, to investigate if for themselves. They invest, if they investigate anything that you happen to put out there, they got to change history. They got to rewrite it. They, they got to mm -hmm. rewrite history. And they I, don't want to do that. No, mm -hmm. they, don't want to, they don't want to do that. And for, for, for understandable uh, human nature reasons. Egos. Uh, ego. ego. Um, they've invested their own careers in a particular model of the past. Uh, if that model is criticized, they take it as a personal criticism of, of, of them. Mm -hmm. And if that model were to be overthrown, uh, then then uh, all their work would be for nothing. So uh, a lot oh, of people have... They'd kill for that. Hmm? They'd kill for that. They would kill for that, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a brutal... It's a brutal thing, archaeology. It's not only me they attack, they attack each other all the time. It's like, it's like dealing with a, with a pack of wolves. Survival of the fittest mentality there. Say again? Survival of the fittest mentality kind of in that realm? Um, no, crab bringing out Survival crabs. of the boss. Survi the, the, basically, the, 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 the hierarchy of archaeology uh -huh. encourages young archaeologists to buy into the theories of older archaeologists. Mm. Because if they don't, if they challenge those theories, then they're not going to get recognition, they're not going to get research funding, they're not going to get grants, and fundamentally they're not going to be able to do the work. So there's, there's moral pressures in the discipline to conform and, mm. to fit, and to fit with what the discipline says. Um, and and uh, this in, inevitably re results in the, in the criticism of my work. I'm very happy for my work to be criticized. Mm -hmm. Criticism is a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'm very happy for that. What I'm not happy about is the lazy, idle way in which they just casually dismiss me as a pseudo-scientist or a pseudo-archaeologist and use woke labels to, 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 to try to diminish my impact further. I think they need to work harder. Uh, if they're going to put this down. And that's why I celebrate the fact that Netflix took the risk of putting this series out there with my contrary views, uh, which archaeologists despise, uh, reject, and detest. By any chance, there's a tribe of people off of, what is it, New Zealand? Mm -hmm. What's that island again? They came from Africa. They've been there for, what, I think 60,000 years on that island? Yeah, the black tribe. Some guy, some guy from one of the, one of the uh, missionary guys. Jesus, praise the Lord. Let me save you. And they do spears. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, they kill that. You know that. Right? I do know. I do know. What's that, that all about? Well, there, there are. Um, I mean, for example, there's, there's no, there's no doubt that human beings came first from Africa. This is a fact. Uh, Africa, Africa is the origin of the human mm -hmm. story, and it's clear that there were many migrations out of Africa. 
uh, going back actually millions of years if we, if we take into account Homo erectus. Uh, and some of those migrations uh, were 60 or 70,000 years ago. So the Australian uh, Aborigines are, are a people who've been on the Australian landmass for 60 or 70,000 years. And, and, and that's no easy task. They had to get all the way from Africa, they had to cross the sea, and, wow. they, ended up, and they ended up in Australia. Um, and, you know what's and, so crazy? They ended up way in Australia when they could just cross the sea and went to, Par- to Paris. Well, yes, <laughs> but they did that as well. <laughs> they, did, they, they, they did that as well. They went everywhere. It's just that Northern Europe during the Ice Age was a pretty unpleasant place to be. Half of it was covered with a, an ice cap that was at least a mile deep or maybe two miles deep. It was very cold. It was very unpleasant. And uh, it, didn't support, it didn't support large populations. So people naturally tended to stay in southern areas rather than northern areas. Think it's something under the North Pole? Um, under the North Pole, probably not much because, because it's largely just sea ice. But under South? Antarctica, the South Pole, now that's an interesting proposition. Yeah. And again, it's another area which has not been studied by archaeology for two reasons. Firstly, because it's extremely expensive to go do archaeology in Antarctica. And secondly, because they're convinced they're not going to find anything there, that it's been ice covered for hundreds of millions of years. But Antarctica is, is a mass, it's a continent-sized landmass. It has solid ground under it. The, the ice sits on top of islands, huge, huge islands. Uh, and I don't think that we can, I don't think that archaeologists have a right to claim that they've got the whole human story taped without taking Antarctica into account, without doing some work there. And the same goes for the Amazon rainforest. Five million square kilometers covered by dense canopy, old growth rainforest, never really studied by archaeologists. And the tiny little bit of research that's being done now, the new imaging that's coming in from LIDAR work, which, which shows you what's under the canopy without destroying it, suggests that there, there are enormous discoveries to be made in the Amazon. Then the other really important place is the Sahara Desert, Africa again. Nine million square kilometers of Sahara Desert, which was green during the Ice Age and is desert now. Just because it's desert now doesn't mean it was always desert. And by and large, there's very little archaeology done in the Sahara Desert. So there's huge areas of our planet. The last one is the continental shelves covered by the 400-foot rise in sea level at the end of the Ice Age. You know, what's sitting underwater that we haven't, that we haven't found yet? Huge areas of our planet, the plain fact is, have never received the attention of archaeologists. So it's premature for archaeologists to say they've got the whole story. Well... Personally, I saw on television that seven miles was the bottom of the ocean, mm-hmm. seven miles deep. Mm-hmm. And at the bottom of the ocean, seven miles, there's another giant black hole, mm. but nothing could pierce it. You can't go in it. I haven't come across that, but it oh, sounds intriguing. Oh, it is. The yeah. bottom of the floor, a big black hole yeah. can't penetrate, so dense. Well, the truth is just that we don't know exactly who or what we are. We don't know who or what our planet is either. I mean, we just scratched the surface of the skin of our planet, of the crust of the Earth, and not really the inner layers. There's all all kinds of theories about what it is, but but no facts. Kind of like the Mountain of Enlightenment when you guys, in in your show, you guys... In Indonesia. Yeah, you guys dug, and then you had... I don't want to get it wrong, but it was like certain years yes. of soil. So this is a site called Gunung Padang uh-huh. in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the particular part of Java, they speak a language called Sundanese. Uh-huh. 
And in the Sundanese language, Gunam Kadang means mountain of light or mountain of enlightenment. It doesn't mean that in the Indonesian language. Mm -hmm. It means mountain field in the Indonesian language. But in the Sundanese language, there it is. Yeah. It means mountain of enlightenment. And this, uh, this site was ignored for a very long time. Weirdly, it was thought to be totally natural, mm -hmm. although, although how something like that could be yeah. natural beats me. Um, and then a little bit of investigation was done digging very shallowly. They found evidence of people maybe a thousand plus years ago, but then they went deeper. They found evidence that humans had been there 5,000 years ago. Then they went deeper still Jeez. and evidence of human beings 24,000 years ago and evidence of large man-made chambers, chambers I remember that, yeah. inside this mound. Amazing. And we have a fantastic uh, Indonesian uh, geologist, Danny Hillman Natuwijaja, who's been doing this research. He's a leading geologist, top specialist in his field, and he's convinced that we're dealing with a 24,000-year-old monument, which was built at the time when the world looked very different. During the Ice Age, when sea level was, was 400 feet higher than it is today, you didn't have the Malaysian Peninsula, you didn't have the Indonesian islands, they were all joined in one huge landmass, and this was part of the highland of that landmass. Yeah. Uh, and then the sea levels rose and most of it got submerged beneath the ocean. But structures like this have survived because they were never covered by the ocean. And, and the evidence suggests that, they were, that they're the work of an unrecognized civilization of prehistory. Yeah, yeah, I loved I loved that uh, that episode. What's DeGrasse Tyson talking about? Well, whatever DeGrasse Tyson talks about, you can be sure it's endorsed by the mainstream. Hell yeah! Um, <laughs> he looks like a company man. Yeah, he's, he's, he's talking like he's, a company. He's, man. he's a company man. He's a very good talker, quite entertaining, but he never goes against the trend. He's always he's always supporting what the mainstream view is, rather than rather than challenging it in any ways. And, and I think it's important. It's important to challenge mainstream views. They shouldn't allow. They shouldn't be allowed to have a monopoly on on our understanding of the past and our understanding of who and and what we are. Well, we really appreciate you because we need someone like you to tell these foolish people they need to rewrite history. I see down there, just underneath DeGrasse Tyson, there's another passage. Thoughts on flat Earth conspiracy theories. Yeah, conspiracy isn't that theories in general. I have to say. The Earth is not flat. <laughs> we live on this huge ball in space, definitely. Um, and and, and uh, I, I, I just have no doubt about that. It's an unnecessary thing. Why does the Earth need to yeah. be flat? Yeah. Is it, what, what is it, even if it was flat, who cares? Uh, I mean, we're here, as a, we're, we're here to live our lives and hopefully to live them well. But the Earth is not flat. And the ancients knew this. The ancients knew this forever. The ancient Egyptians knew this. Everybody knows that the Earth is, that the earth is not flat. You just need, to, just need to stand on a, on a cliff and look at a distant ocean horizon and see a ship come towards you. And you'll see the, the funnel of the ship first before you see the, the deck of the ship. Yeah. That's because it's coming around a curved horizon. Um, yet that, that conspiracy theory survives. So this is, the, this is part of the way that my work gets pissed on by archaeologists, is that they lump me together with all kinds of theories that I don't buy into. I don't buy into the flat earth theory. I don't need aliens in order to explain the mysteries of our past. Yeah. The simplest, 
clearest explanation is that there's been a forgotten episode in human history and, and we have lost part of our story. We're a species with amnesia. And, and um, that's, what, that's the, the, the argument that I've been trying to put forward mm-hmm. uh, to explain things that are not explained by the mainstream narrative. We're looking at um, uh, the, 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 the Piri Reese map here, uh, one, one bit up. And that's an interesting map, the Piri Reese map. Mm. Uh, and, and we have an episode in Ancient Apocalypse that touches on the mysteries of the Piri Reese map. In this, in this uh, frame, it's actually de- depicted on its side. But if you were to turn it vertically, uh, you will see that it's showing a bit of North America and South America, and it goes on down to Antarctica. Now, we went to the island of Bimini in the Grand Bahama Banks, uh, right off Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about 50 miles east of Miami. Uh, and we, we dived at Bimini because there is this structure underwater at Bimini that's known as the Bimini Road. Mm-hmm. And it's a classic megalithic structure. It's blocks of stone, 10 to 20 tons each, which are laid out in a very regular pattern on the seabed and which were covered by rising sea levels at the end of the Ice Age. Um, if we take the map on its side that's occupying the main frame there, and you'll see at the left-hand side of that map, there's an island. Uh, if you could bring the cursor down onto it, just keep going down. Keep going down. That big island there. Mm-hmm. That big island uh, occupies the place where the Grand Bahama banks are. Uh, and that big island does not exist, didn't exist in 1513 when Piri Reese drew the map, didn't, doesn't exist today, but did exist during the Ice Age. And um, he shows it remarkably accurately, the right size. And what is pictured in the middle of it looks very much like an image of the Bimini Road, yeah. which, is now, which is now underwater. So we went to Bimini, we investigated the Bimini Road. I think that's in probably episode three of the series, uh, or maybe episode four. Uh, and and uh, then we looked at the implications for ancient maps, because Piri Reis, who's a Turkish admiral, he did not um, just draw that map out of nowhere. He drew that map in 1513, but it was he tells us in his own handwriting on the map that it was based on more than 20 older source maps. And wow. he suggests that those older maps were associated in some way with Alexander the Great. Uh, the implication is that they may have come out of the lost library of oh, Alexandria, which was a treasure house of ancient wisdom until it was destroyed. Um, and and uh, it's, it's his reliance. There's the Bimini Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to dive. It's a very, I've done a lot of diving, but that's a very unchallenging dive because it's only about 20 feet deep mm-hmm. and there's lovely warm water. Uh, and, it's a, and, and at the bottom of it, you have this anomaly, which again, archaeologists, because they don't like the idea that our ancestors were creating something like this during the ice age, they say, oh, it's entirely natural. That's not the Bimini Road that we're looking at there, whatever that is. But the Bimini Road is these huge pillow-shaped megalithic slabs. That's that's the Bimini Road. And and, um, uh, archaeologists want it to be natural and say that it's just naturally formed beach rock. But I've seen beach rock all over the world, above and underwater, and none of it looks like this. And I took along as a diving buddy, uh, Michael Haley, who's a marine biologist who's done even more diving than I have around the world. And he also agreed that he's never seen anything like this. And furthermore, we found that these blocks are plopped, uh, propped up on little stones in some cases, though they were using the stones to level the feature out yeah. where there was a slope underneath. So I'm, I'm confident it's man-made, but whether or not it's man-made, the fact that it appears on that map drawn in 1513 based on, based on maps that yeah. came from the Library of Alexandria yeah. uh, raises huge other, huge other questions. And the Pinkerton map, 
Um, it's worth making a point about that, the Pinkerton world map, uh, because um, let's find the bit that shows the southern hemisphere and shows us keep going down. We want to see the view from the southern hemisphere. There it is. There, there it is. Are. This is the, um, the, 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 the Pinkerton world map. Um, and I believe it was drawn in around 1813. Uh, and in this case, it did not rely on ancient source maps. It was because by that, by 1813, there was a lot of navigation and, 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 and uh, we had explored most of the world. So this map was based on the latest navigational and exploration knowledge in 2013. But obviously, if you look at it, something big is missing from the picture. <laughs> yeah. And that big something that's missing from the picture is Antarctica. Yeah. It's not there. And the reason it's not there is because this was an honest map. It was based on what they knew in 1813. So the weird point is that Antarctica then does appear, it does appear on much older maps. Uh, if you search Orontius Phineas world map, for example, O-R-O-N-T-A-E-U-S and Phineas, F-I-N-N-A-E-U-S, Orontius Phineas world Can I map. Can spell this? That'll, that'll probably find it. That'll probably, that'll probably find it. Um, and and uh, go to the second row, shift over to the right, third from the, third from the right. There, uh, it, at the tip of South America and at the tip of South Africa is Antarctica. Yeah. And that's on a map drawn in 1534 by Arontius Phineas, 300 years before the Pinkerton map didn't know wow. that Antarctica was there. And how does he know it's there? because it's based on older source maps, now lost. Even the Piri Reis map is only a fragment. The rest of that map is lost as well. We only got a little bit of the Piri Reis map. So maps get lost all the time, but what the Orontius Phineas map is preserving is knowledge of the world during the Ice Age. Somebody was exploring the Earth and mapping the Earth during the Ice Age. That's a bigger Antarctica than it is today. It's much closer to South America and its coastlines because that's how it was during the Ice Age. It was a bigger, a much bigger continent than it is today. It, isn't there a theory, though, and I, I'm pretty sure you said this already, that the middle of it is it explored of... I mean, is it the middle of Antarctica, like no one's ever actually went there to actually like really, see, really. See there's what... absolutely minimum exploration of Antarctica. There is some, there is some what they call core drilling. Yeah, where where drills are put down and bring up and bring up ice cores, and a lot of the ice cores do date back millions of years, but they haven't explored. They haven't ice cored the whole of the Antarctic continent, and and there's so much there that the possibility of something else being found needs to be, needs to be taken into account. Um, there, there was a theory, uh, which I explored in my, in my first book that looked into the lost civilization mystery, a theory um, called Earth Crust Displacement. And in Fingerprints of the Gods, published in 1995, I investigated that theory. And what that theory suggests is that the crust of the Earth can sometimes move around the inner air layers of the earth, uh, rather like a, the comparison would be an orange with, it, with a loose skin. So mm. the, the fruit of the orange stays in one place, but the skin Just moves around it. That would, the, and the argument was that Antarctica was once in a warmer zone uh, and, and it was shifted south into the Antarctic zone and became the frozen continent we see today. Um, there, are, there are many issues that, that have been dismissed by archaeology that need consideration. The one thing that I'm left with after 30 years investigating this subject, actually more than 30 years, um, is that we had a giant global cataclysm 
12,800 years ago. And it wasn't just a moment, it lasted for 1,200 years until 11,600 years ago. Whatever arguments there are about the cause of this cataclysm, some people say it was the sun. I go with, I go with about 100 major scientists who believe that the Earth ran into the debris stream of a fragmenting comet. Uh, comets uh, come in from deep space mm -hmm. and they can be trapped by the sun into an orbit around the sun that crosses the orbit of the Earth. But comets are loosely bound together, huge chunks of rock and ice, and they break up into multiple pieces. And, and the suggestion was that, that uh, 12,800 years ago, a disintegrating comet leaving a huge debris, debris trail that the Earth passed through it and we were bombarded by... by probably a thousand fragments of this comet, some of them pretty large, a kilometer in diameter, landing on the North American ice cap in particular. Some of them smaller, small enough to burst in the air. Uh, one of those took place very, very near to Gobekli Tepe at a site in Syria called mm. Abu Herrera. Uh, there was an airburst over Abu Herrera 12,800 years ago. And in every case, what do they leave on the ground? They leave platinum, iridium, quartz that's been melted at temperatures of more than 2,000 degrees centigrade, carbon microspherules, nanodiamonds, all of these things are the signatures of a comet impact. And it's, and it's the torrid meteor stream, uh, which you're showing on your screen now, which is the, which is the culprit. Uh, we, still, we, we, we are still in interaction with the torrid meteor stream. It's an ancient stream. The astronomers are convinced that the torrid meteor stream is the breakdown debris of a giant comet, mm. a comet maybe 100 miles in diameter that broke up into thousands of fragments. And in doing so, it spread out into a huge stream of debris. And the torrid meteor stream, the Earth we can see in this diagram, mm -hmm. the Earth passes through it twice a year. Mm. It passes through it in June and it passes through it in November. We've just finished a passage of the torrid meteor stream. And, and it's the same meteor stream that caused all the damage on the Earth 12,800 years ago. Uh, and, and the most recent definite damage from the torrid meteor stream was in 1908, the Tunguska event in Siberia. Siberia, uh, where, where, where an object probably about 100 meters in diameter blew up in the sky uh -huh. and then flattened thousands of square miles of, of, of forest. Wow. Um, and that happened on the 30th of June. 1908 at the at the it heart was like of the a nuclear explosion. I like a missile explosion. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, in the case of the younger Dryas, going back 12,000, there's the wrecked forest of Siberia, where the where and that's right meteorite there. crater in in Arizona, which is Sheesh. an earlier an earlier event. Um, but the torrid meteor stream is a real and present danger to life on Earth. Um, and and uh, the suggestion from Gobekli Tepe, see the mystery of Gobekli Tepe is not only did they created right at the end of this cataclysmic episode. The episode began 12,800 years ago with a cataclysm, with a sudden rise in sea levels. There was 1,200 years of absolute hell on Earth. Mm. Then there was another change of temperature. Global temperature shot up very mm -hmm. rapidly. Mm -hmm. The last ice sheets collapsed yeah. into the sea. Uh, and uh, that's the end of this episode. That's the beginning of our modern age, effectively. And at exactly that moment, Gobekli Tepe starts to be built by people who were only hunter-gatherers. They weren't a settled agricultural community. But, but, they, but they created this incredible structure, the largest monumental structure on Earth. And in the process of creating it, they became agriculturalists. 
but the structure came first, the agriculture came second. And again, this is a, an unpopular view with archaeologists, but I think what we're looking at in Gobekli Tepe is what I call a transfer of technology, that people who already knew agriculture and who already knew how to create megalithic structures yeah. came to Gobekli Tepe, they used the construction of Gobekli Tepe to mobilize the local population, and in the process they taught them agriculture. And then they buried it like a time capsule because that same Pillar 43 that we looked at earlier spells out two dates. It spells out the date of 12,800 years ago when the cataclysm began, and it spells out our date today uh, at the different solstices, at the winter and summer solstices. So the suggestion is, and I pursue this in episode eight of Ancient Apocalypse, that what they were what they were doing, why, why did they go to all that trouble to bury Gobekli Tepe? Yeah. Burying it was more work than making it. <laughs> yeah. They put a massive great hill on top of it. Why did they, why did they do that? And, and the suggestion is it's a time capsule and that they intended to pass down a message to the future. And they used astronomy to provide dates for that. And they said, this, a very bad thing happened in the time that we call 12,800 years ago, and a very bad thing is going to happen in your time. I unless think, you do something about it. I think they were it. conscious of us. Yeah. They were conscious, and they, thought, and they knew that we were going to read their work. Yeah, I think so too. I think really, it's a, it's I a think, message. I think people had giant egos. Mm -hmm. They thought they were gods, and God was going to see them. And they were going to see God when they died. Uh, many people think that. And who knows what we're, what we're, what we're going to see when we, when we, when we die. Um, but but uh, what Gobekli Tepe speaks to me is a careful, deliberate effort to preserve a most extraordinary and inexplicable structure, to keep it safe. Bear in mind that it, it, it was, the work started 11,600 years ago. The site ran for about 1,000 years to 10,600 or 10,400 years ago. Then they close it down, they cover it up, they pour in millions of tons of rubble mm. into all the stone circles. They create an artificial hill over the top of it and they seal it. And then for the next 10,000 years, nobody knows it's there. Yeah. If it had been left open, it would have been destroyed by now. Human beings would have cannibalized it. Yeah. They would have used it as a quarry. Yeah. They would have taken away all those big blocks and used them for other purposes. But because they buried it, it's still there today. Time, kind of like a time capsule. Like a time capsule, capsule. exactly like a time capsule. And I, that's the only motive I can think of for, for, for burying it. And in, in episode eight, we go into that in quite some detail as to why it's not just speaking of the past, it's also speaking of the future yeah. and of our time. And, and what's kind of special about our time uh, is that we do not have to be helpless victims of the universe. It is, it is possible to do something about this problem. Uh, and it's a point I often make, but I'd like to make it again here. Right now, the world is so fucked up. People are no filled doubt. with hatred and fear and suspicion. People are, people are fighting and murdering one another. People are invading each other's countries. We're, we're still locked into this tribal mentality of the past yeah. uh, and failing to recognize that we're all one human creature, that we're all brothers and sisters, and that if we were to cooperate on every challenge that mankind faces, we would be able to solve all of those challenges, including the torrid meteor stream. That's facts. But we're not cooperating. We're, 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 we're filled with division. Um, and I, I, I just don't, I just don't get it. Uh, why we're still like this? Mm -hmm. um, I'm. I love the richness and diversity of human culture. That there are many different cultures. But mm -hmm. I do not. I do not like nationalism. 
and I do not like patriotism, and these seem to me to be bankrupt ideas. Why should I be especially loyal to a particular country and government? Because by accident, I was born there. What merit, why should I be proud of my answer? I, they did whatever they did, but I didn't do it. Yeah. Why should, I, I should only be proud of my own achievements. Um, and why should I seek to divide myself off from other human beings who are just like me? I've been privileged to travel the world for more than 40 years. Uh -huh. And everywhere I go in the world, in the remotest desert, the remotest savanna, in the midst of a jungle, in the midst of a city, fundamentally, we human beings are all the same. We have the same hopes, the same fears, the same dreams. We love our children in the same way. We love our partners in the same way. We're, we're, we're filled with the same weaknesses and the same strengths. And what divides us is much less significant than what, what unites us. So, and I need to be clear when I make this point because I get, I get attacked so often for being against nationalism. One's supposed to be a nationalist in the world we live in today, and I'm not. But I want to be clear, I'm not in favor of government. I don't want big government. I don't want a world government telling us what to do. I want no government. I'm an anarchist. Anarchist means without government. Without government. And, 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 that's, and that's all it means. I, I think governments are the source of so many of the problems that we have in the world today, the, the incredibly bad leadership that, that, we, that we see around the world. Very few, very few leaders uh, I would even want to pass the time of day with. And they are, they are driving us into madness. And it's in their interest to divide human beings from one another. So I would like to see a world where we recognize the beautiful variety of cultural difference, uh -huh. but we don't claim that our culture is superior then, to another culture or that that culture is inferior to our, we don't, we don't make those claims. We recognize the beauty of the diversity uh, and we give our loyalty to the human family, not to a particular artificial construct called a nation. Um, and and I, I just don't understand why that makes people so angry, but, but apparently it does. So, you don't think there'll be some chaos without a government, though? Just, I'm just curious. I think governments are the cause of the chaos. Okay. I think, I think human beings... I left, Yeah, left to their own devices, human beings are not chaotic. Mm -hmm. uh, Hunter-gatherer societies are not chaotic. They don't yeah. have governments, but they're mutually supportive, nurturing, yeah. loving, positive. They work together on common objectives. Yeah. And, and they're, they're, they're very positive human cultures. Yeah. Um, I think governments are actually the cause of the problem, but then they use the propaganda, they use our money against us to create propaganda to teach us, to persuade us, to convince us that we can't possibly live without them, that we need these parasites, you know, yeah. sitting at the top yeah. in government, governing us and being presidents and being prime ministers and being ministers and of dividing. this or that, telling us what yeah. to do. And dividing us. And dividing us. Yeah. It's, in their in, it's in their interests to persuade us that we need them. Uh, but I don't think we do need them. And I don't, think, I don't think that governments are a source of stability in the world. I think they're a source of instability in the world. Look what's, look what's happening in, in Ukraine right now and, and, and the, whole, the whole situation that's, that's going on there. This is a situation that's being manipulated by all kinds of governments to create more chaos and more misery, which then persuades us that we need more government. No, we need less government, little government as possible, minimal government. Um, and, and I'll take this opportunity to my particular rant, which, I've, <laughs> which I rant about at every opportunity is let's make it a law that nobody can run for high office until they have had at least a dozen very powerful psychedelic journeys. Mm. Can be the mushrooms, can be the mushrooms. They're wonderful, they're wonderful teachers. Can be ayahuasca, 
I don't mind what their psychedelic of choice is, but they, they need to go do a dozen journeys and they will be confronted with their own baggage because that's part of the, 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 the psychedelic experience that we, that we are forced to face our dark side. We're forced to face our baggage and we're given the choice. Yeah. Carry on being a piece of shit or actually change your life. <laughs> and I think that many of, those, many of those people who are running for world leadership positions, mm -hmm. they would back out. If they'd, if they'd had a dozen ayahuasca or a dozen, you know, heroic journeys with mushrooms, they wouldn't want to be politicians anymore. They'd yeah. want to do something more useful in the, in the world. And if by chance they stayed on as politicians, then they would be more educated, gentler, nurturing, kinder people Empathetic. than they are today. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. So what are we looking at there? DMT and human volunteers in London seeing the same entities. This is, this is such an interesting thing. Um, psychedelics are enjoying a renaissance in our society today. Okay. There's no doubt about it. They're enjoying a renaissance. They're demonized substances 20 years ago, but now we know that they have hugely valuable therapeutic outcomes. And that's particularly true for people with post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, for people with deep depression, um, for people who are fearing death, for people who are suffering from terminal cancer and, and are fearing death. Uh, none of the big pharma drugs are any good, but psychedelics, particularly mushrooms, uh, will will lift people out of those states. Will break PTSD. I'm, I'm pro mushroom. I'm pro mushroom too. The mushrooms oh, are the man. ancient teachers yeah. of mankind. They have been co-evolving with us for millions of years, yeah. and and they are our allies and our friends. And like good friends, they sometimes give us a thorough kicking, because sometimes we need a thorough kicking. That's what, they, that's what they do. And, and, and so it's weird that our society has demonized these substances for the last 60 or 70 years. But now, you know, you can't hold out against the evidence. Yeah. Now the evidence is that these substances are nurturing and helpful to people, particularly to people who are you. locked in a, in a narrow yes. frame of mind. But this trial that's taking place at Imperial College in London is something different. They're not looking to see how can DMT be used to cure people from PTSD, mm -hmm. although it may well do so. Mm -hmm. They're looking to see what actually is happening in the DMT experience. What is, what is going on? How can I sell that? How can I make money from that? Well, that's not the first, that's not the first case at, the, at Imperial College. Um, uh, ra rather, the first case is a, it's a kind of exploration. Is there a real, is there something real to the DMT journey? The entities that we encounter, the beings that we meet, the teachings mm. that they give us, the strange realm. I mean, Terence McKenna used to call them machine elves, you know, the, the strange realm in which, they, in which they operate. Is it just a fantasy of the brain? Or are we locking into some kind of parallel universe, mm. uh, which we normally like can't both see? Way, it feels both ways. Both ways, yeah. 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 The brain is involved. Imagination is involved. We, we, we construe these experiences through the culture that we live in. But I've talked to a number of the volunteers on this trial that's taking place in London. Uh, and they are, what they're telling me is that a new technology is being used. Anybody listening will, uh, who's smoked DMT will know that DMT is a very short extremely intense journey. It's, mm. it's about yeah. 12 minutes. Yeah. Um, you are plunged, whether you like it or not. If you, 
if you get the right dose, if you underdose, you might not go over the edge. But if you get the right dose, you're plunged into a parallel reality. Oh, wow. And, and, and you're stuck there for the next 12 minutes. And it's so overwhelming and there's so much going on. A lot of people find it terrifying. Some people find it amusing. Uh -huh. Some people find it curious. But we don't really remember a lot of it. It's so, you come out of the DMT state and you think, what the fuck happened to me? I don't, yeah. I don't even remember what happened to me. So in, in Imperial College, they're finding ways to keep people on DMT for an hour. Yeah. They're giving it as, a, as an intravenous drip and it's going straight into the bloodstream. And, and um, that gives them time to adjust, to adapt to this strange landscape. And they're all coming back with the same kinds of descriptions of the same entities in the same environment. And I can't wait to see what the, what the outcome uh, of, that, of that will be. Um, yeah. I've smoked DMT multiple times myself. Oh, wow. Um, I've had uh, some extraordinary experiences, some terrifying, some just absolutely intriguing. Yeah. Every one of them was something that I don't regret. I'm glad that I had those experiences. Mm -hmm. I wish I could. I wish I could um, uh, volunteer for the, for this trial that's taking place in London. But unfortunately, in 2017, um, I suffered from. Uh, I came very close to death with a massive epileptic seizure, oh, no. which came out of nowhere. Um, I I was I was just hit with a what they call a grand ma grand mal clonic tonic seizure. I was thrashing around and shouting and roaring. Uh, my wife called the ambulance. We were upstairs. One ambulance crew wasn't enough. They had to bring another ambulance crew. Oh they had to carry me downstairs uh, and out to the ambulance. I was still, I don't remember any of this. I was still roaring and shouting. Santa tells me that the ambulance was shaking with me, with me in it. They take me off to the hospital. Santa's in the ambulance. And at the hospital, they can't stop me seizing. I'm still, I'm still in the state of seizure. And so the doctors say to Santa, um, we, you may lose him. And, and uh, at the very least, he's going to suffer brain damage unless we put him into a coma right now. And they, they put me into a, an induced coma, oh uh, which I was in for 48 hours. And the next thing I remember is the ventilator tube being hauled out of my mouth. And I'm saying, get this fucking thing out of me. I, and I, I didn't remember anything else. I was the, the just total blank for all, of, for all of that period. But because of that, uh -huh. because I have epilepsy, because when you get it at my age, I'm 72 now, when oh, you, wow. when you get epilepsy in childhood, you often grow out of it. Uh -huh. But when you get it as an adult, it's with you for life. And so at Imperial, I've tried to volunteer. Uh -huh. At Imperial College, they said, we can't accept you because what happens if you die of epilepsy in the MRI scanner? Then our whole project will be closed down. Uh -huh. um, but my wife, Santa, may well volunteer for that. She doesn't have, she doesn't have epilepsy. And meanwhile, I'll go on smoking DMT from time to time to explore, <laughs> to explore that realm. So how does it feel? How does it feel? Like, so you explained it, but like, so you said you have good, you have good uh, trips, bad trips. Listen, every time, every time I smoke DMT, I have to brace myself. I, I mean, like sit down next to comfy couch. It's like, it's like, this is going to be rough, um, oh. and I'm scared of it. <laughs> what? But I really, I'm really curious about it, so I'm going to smoke this thing anyway. And the first two puffs don't quite take you there, and the third one, and then you do the fourth, and then you're gone. Uh, Just black out. No, you're having experiences that are not of this world. Like seeing, like is it like you're, seeing things? Seeing yes, things? seeing things, encountering entities who 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 speak to you, um, who give you instructions, who 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 
beam telepathic messages into your brain. I know all of this sounds nuts, no, but, and, no, most, no. and most scientists would say this is nuts, but at, at Imperial College in London, they realize it's not nuts, and yeah. that all human beings have these experiences with DMT. And why are we having them? What's going on? And there's a kind of nexus with quantum physics. Maybe, maybe we are dealing with, uh, with parallel realms. Why does it attack that part of the brain? Well, the funny, the funny thing about DMT is it's naturally produced in the human body. We all make DMT. DMT is everywhere in nature. And, and it's a natural product of the human body, usually in sub-psychedelic quantities. But there's evidence that very close to death, the DMT rate rises. That uh -huh. it may be something that helps us to transition. Um, there's evidence in the dreaming state that DMT rises. There's a, there's a lot in common between, between DMT and dreams. So I'm waiting to see the, the, the further outcomes of this work that's being done at, at Imperial College. But there, there's a bunch of volunteers that I've talked to are having extraordinary experiences. And I just wish I didn't have epilepsy and could lie down on that table and get the intravenous infusion <laughs> too. Uh, although it would be frightening uh, because the nice thing about the smoke DMT is it is only 12 minutes. And, and you, can, you can, even if you're utterly terrified, mm -hmm. a little bit of you knows you're going to be out of there before too long. Yeah. Mushrooms, on the other hand... Uh, they're are, mild. Are, they're mild. Well, it depends how much you take, but they're a, lo they're a, they're a longer journey, a longer, milder journey. Like in, in fact, psilocybin is often described as, as orally active uh, DMT because it's very closely related to the DMT molecule. Um, I agree. Ancient teachers of mankind, we uh, have benefited enormously uh, from these gifts that nature has provided us with. And mushrooms are one of those gifts, and uh, so frankly is cannabis. Cannabis is another of those gifts. Thank God our society is finally waking up to how absurd and ludicrous it is for cannabis to be illegal. What a stupid thing. In the same society that, that uh, glorifies alcohol, in the same society that glorifies, well, no longer glorifies, but certainly allows tobacco, uh, we, we, are going to, we are going to put, still there are countries that put people in prison for cannabis. Yeah. It's completely ridiculous. Alcohol is A, a very boring drug, and, and B, a very dangerous drug. It is, it's so bad for you. It's a very dangerous it's so, drug, it's so bad for the health. It's so bad It for puts health. people into a violent frame of mind, yeah. they get into fights, they drive badly. I'll tell you, if, if, if I had to choose between being driven by a stoned driver and a, dunk, a drunk driver, I would choose the stoned driver every time. Yeah. Every time. Because they, there's a saying that uh, alcohol derives from the word al-ghul. Al-ghul, yeah, I believe yeah. that's true, an Arabic word. Yeah, yeah Arabic yeah. word, which means, um, which is like a, which means like a, evil or something a like demon that? Or demon, something demon like that. or something like that? So well, like, well, it's crazy, it that's is, what we're drinking, we're putting it, our bodies. It right? is like, a bit demonic. And, and, and the thing to realize is that that when, when people drink alcohol, I, I drink alcohol now extremely rarely because it causes, it causes migraines for me. But I will occasionally, very occasionally, have a glass of wine. Now, a glass of wine can taste nice, mm -hmm. but nobody is drinking alcohol for the taste. Fundamentally, they're drinking alcohol for the change in consciousness that it produces. It produces a little bit of relief from the daily grind. And it's that you'd knock back that whiskey or that double whiskey or that vodka or that glass of wine and you just feel a little bit, a little bit Oof. better. So a little bit. And that's, and so what our society is doing with alcohol, there's a legalized altered state of consciousness. Yeah. Uh, and yet other altered states of consciousness, cannabis in many countries, fortunately not in California. I'm pleased, I'm pleased that the American people are taking their power back state by state. 
uh, and it's a it's a it's a good thing to see, and I hope it will be an example to other countries in the world. But I'm, a, I'm allergic to alcohol. Yeah, it's a horrible drug. Every time drug. I drink it, I break out of the handcuffs. <laughs> <laughs> Beautifully put. Uh, <laughs> That's exactly. a real deal. Exactly. Mike, this is amazing. Yeah, Mr. Graham. Yeah, you break out, yeah. <laughs> no, so, so uh, we live in a hypocritical society. That's okay. Uh, which, doesn't, uh, which doesn't embrace the lessons of our ancestors. Our ancestors were always using psychedelics. Uh, they are fundamental to all religions. They are fundamental to all great ideas, uh, and this has just been written out of history. It's another one of those things that historians don't want us to know. The whole world's a big lie. Unfortunately, there are a lot of big lies. Yeah, there are. There are, and the trick is to find the truth uh, in amongst them. Human population just hit eight billion. What's next? I'm looking at the screen here. Well, a lot of, a lot of diseases. <laughs> I, I, the screen's looking me straight in the face. I can't, <laughs> I can't help it. I have, to, I have to read it out. Human population just hit 8 billion. What's next? 9 billion? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what's next. I think when, when you look at, the, when you look at the, the so-called population problem, it's not really a population problem. It's a distribution problem. Mm. Um, you know, we blame it all on the poor mm -hmm. and say, oh, the poor, they have so many children. Yeah. They're, they're um, increasing the human population. But their consumption of the world's resources is minimal, minimal by yeah. comparison with one wealthy family in the, in the industrialized West. Mm -hmm. we, we have, have small families now. Why, why, do, why do, do the poor have large families? Because having a large family is an asset because your children will look after you in old age. Um, the moment that you solve the economic needs of people, they stop having, they stop having so, many, so many kids. Mm -hmm. So, so the, problem is, the problem is not population as such, the problem is distribution. This world can support an, a much larger population than eight billion, but we have to share it a bit more kindly. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, shouldn't all be locked up within, you, you know, within a few countries that are incredibly mega wealthy mm -hmm. and, and other countries that are, that, that, that are, that are starving. Um, it's, it's not just a problem. Look after the people and the population will look after itself. I agree. I agree. What are your thoughts on religion and gods since you've been studying sure. so much? Um, I grew up in a, in a religious family. Uh, my Grandfather was a minister of the church. I recently discovered he climbed the Great Pyramid in 1916. Oh, wow. He was a chaplain with British forces in Egypt during the First World War. Um, he was a minister of the church, um, and he was a sort of fire and brimstone preacher. Mm -hmm. uh, my father was brought up in that Christian tradition, but he became a doctor. Mm -hmm. And then rather than take a plush teaching job in a, in a big teaching hospital in the UK, uh, he went out to India with me and, and my mum uh, in 1954. Um, and he was, um, he was a surgeon in a place called the Christian Medical College in Vellore in South India. Uh, so I spent four years of my childhood in South India amongst a Christian community and constantly receiving Christian propaganda. 
Um, I don't think at that age that I began to rebel about, against it. But mm-hmm. I know that by the time I became a teenager, mm-hmm. I was very anti-Christian. I rebelled. We all rebel against our parents. And I, I rebelled against mine. Yeah. And I didn't want to be a Christian. And I didn't want to kneel down in church. And I didn't like that entity that they called God. Um, and I regarded myself as an atheist. Um, that's another one of those words which needs to be carefully defined. Mm-hmm. Just as anarchist needs to be carefully defined. Anarchist means without governments. Atheist means without God. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't mean without a belief in the supernatural. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to believe that we're just accidents of chemistry and biology. You can believe, as I do, in life after death without being a Christian mm-hmm. or without being a, 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 a Muslim or without being a Jew. You don't, these are the three big monotheistic faiths that, that dominate the world today. And then, of course, there are millions of other faiths as well, which all have different ideas. Um, I, mean, I mean, I think that the very fact that there are so many different ways of looking at this problem tells us that not any one of those ways is right. Mm-hmm. They, they, they can't all be right, since they all say so, 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 such, such different things. So I think that next to governments, uh, the three big monotheistic faiths uh, have been responsible for a great deal of misery and chaos uh, mm-hmm. in this world. The Christian church uh, in its early days and right through until the 18th century was a vicious, murderous institution. I mean, can you imagine burning a fellow human being or at the being stake? Stoned for now, or right? being stoned for now. Or, or being in Islam, stoned. being stoned to death. Being stoned to death. A, 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 a woman wears her hair too long or is unfaithful to her husband and, oh, and she gets real, stoned God to death. God is real pissed at that. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's, so, it's so cruel and, and so anti-human in, in every way that we would actually stone a fellow human being to death, that we'd burn a fellow God. human being at the stake in the name, in the name of, God. of God. What kind of God is that? That's a demon that we're worshiping there, in my view, not, not a God. And I know this is going to get me into trouble with lots of religious fanatics, but, but the harm that the big religions have done in the world today far outweighs the good that they've done. And I think that's another area where we need to move forward as a human species. And it's an area where psychedelics are very helpful because they give us a direct experience of, let's call it the divine. Let's not call it God. They give us a direct experience of the divine. Nobody's teaching us. We're having that experience ourselves. And and, uh, the more people work with psychedelics in a serious, respectful way, Mm Uh, the more deep thought is going to is going to go into these mysteries. You think they will probably grow closer to the divine? Which yes. You, can, you don't call God, but the yeah, but to the let's call it the divine or the universe, uh-huh. whatever we want to call it. But let's not call it God, uh, because God carries baggage. God carries, particularly in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, God carries the notion of this stern, bearded figure sitting in the clouds judging us. Um, he's just like a a president, but with divine powers, you know. It's, it's the tribal chief uh, with, with supernatural powers. We don't have to buy into that to accept that there's something incredibly mysterious in the universe, that it's an incredible mystery to be alive, to have this opportunity of a human life, yeah. to, to have this opportunity to learn and to grow and to develop. Of course, we're, I can't prove this, but we're not just accidents of chemistry yeah. and biology. There is some kind of project unfolding here on earth. And it's a project about the manifestation, the growth of, and the realization of consciousness in my, in my view. Uh, without consciousness, we're nothing. We're just meat machines. Yeah. Consciousness, is, consciousness is what the human experience is all about. And that's why I so much detest laws 
uh, that seek to patrol our consciousness mm -hmm. and to tell us what we may or may not do with our own bodies. Mm -hmm. You know, that you can't take that particular psychedelic. Yeah. Uh, and if you do, we're going to send you to prison and ruin your life. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in Britain, uh, if you're caught smoking cannabis, you're going to be sent to, very likely be sent to prison, particularly if you're in possession of a quantity of it. The police chiefs in Britain actually are advocating now that cannabis should be upgraded from a class B drug to a class A drug, which is, which is the highest hey. schedule. Wow. You know, and, 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 and yet those same police chiefs are drinking alcohol uh, every night in the yeah. pub. Yeah. Uh, what, what hypocrisy is that? As long as we do no harm to others. There should be no government, no institution, no authority figure telling us what to do with our own bodies and our own consciousness and our own health. Women's rights too. And women's rights and too, women's yes, rights of too. course, very much women's so. Rights too. This is, this is, these, are, these are universal human rights, which, mm -hmm. which should not be patrolled and monitored by government, government figures. They, we should not be told sure. what to do. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I believe God is love, though. Like, I don't know. I'm at a point in my life where where you're right. So growing up, I grew up the same way, Christian, mm. faith, you know, and I always looked at it as if... Um, Praise the Lord. I always looked at it as as if, like, you know, you always getting judged, right? And, yeah. and I got to a point, certain point in my life where I was like, you know what, like, I had to kind of, like, go back and relearn my faith. Yeah. And, like, read more. Yeah. And learn more. And I kind of just look at God as more so as a loving entity. Yeah. And maybe more so the divine of what you're talking about, maybe that space of yeah. when you get to Well, as long as as long as we can extract that idea of uh -huh. God from the place that the three big monotheistic faiths have put it. Uh -huh. As long as we can extract that yeah. entity from that, I'm okay with it. Yeah. Um because because really what else is there in the universe apart from consciousness and love yeah. that really matters? What do we what do we value at the end of our lives on this earth? More than the love we've given and the love we've received. Yeah. These are these are the, and, and love has no price. You can't buy love. You can't buy it. No matter no matter how wealthy a person you are, it's something you can't buy. Uh, and it's something you can't you can't buy it to receive it and you can't buy it to give it either. Yeah. Uh, that's 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 the beautiful thing. That's the, that's the lasting thing. And that's why this world so full of hatred, so full of fear, deliberately manipulated fear, yeah. so full of suspicion of one another is not a good place for 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 human beings to to be right now. I'm looking at that screen again. <laughs> it's beaming to me, yeah. and it's saying, it's saying thoughts on simulation theory. Yes, yeah, simulation, simulation okay. theory. Are we in a simulation are we in, right are now? Are we in one, Mike? I don't know where the fuck we are. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it time since it's legal to light up a little cannabis? Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to smoke? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. All right, guys, let's get a joint. And while we do that, Mike, don't you have a gift to give him? Yes, I do. Where's the lighter, guy? Oh, a special weed gift for Greg. Oh, a special weed yeah. gift. lighter? Music yeah. to my ears. Okay, Who has the lighter? <laughs> Who has the lighter? <laughs> This has the strongest need for ground from Tyson 2.0. Oh, no, thank brother. you, Mike. Thank you. Don't worry, brother. Get the pump in, man. I love it. Thank you very much. I'm all sorted for the next days and weeks. Um, okay, now we'll light this. Yeah, you so do I, that. So I normally, oh, wait, yeah. I normally vape, but this is, so this is going to be hefty on the lungs. Yeah, it'll be beautiful. You get this gear at hotboxing.store. It's right here, hotboxing.store, right here. This is your weed you make? Yes, yes, brother. Best in the world. Bag Eat everybody. Bag full wow. of goodies. See, it's... It's, it's, it's nice, it's different 
there's a difference between smoking and vaping. I, I vape usually. I used, to, I used to smoke 40 cigarettes a day until I was about 36 years old. And then I quit. And at exactly the time I quit cigarettes, I started smoking cannabis. That's the best uh, thing. <laughs> I, I hadn't smoked it much before, but then I, I smoked it a lot. And, and um, then I found vaping. Mm-hmm. And, and vaping is gentler on the lungs. But I must say, you get more taste with this. this is That's very tasty. So thoughts on simulation. <laughs> yeah, are we living? Are we living in a simulation? The simulation theory. Well, uh, well, well, that makes that makes perfect sense. If the project is to expand and grow and develop consciousness, uh, then it makes perfect sense to create a world. Uh, to, uh, and in order to create a world, you have to go further. You have to create a solar system. You have to create a universe yeah. for that solar system to 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 swim in. Mm-hmm. And and the, the real us is our consciousness, mm-hmm. which is which is separate from physical bodies, but which is capable of being immersed in physical bodies. So here we are; we're all avatars, and our consciousness is immersed in us. And the deal, the deal with this is that you don't know you're a simulation. Mm-hmm. If you knew you were a simulation, then you would not be able to benefit so much. Thoughts on Wikipedia. Wikipedia fucking sucks. Yeah, Wikipedia fucking sucks. It's just, it's <laughs> you know, it really does. Um, I mean, I'm not saying everything on Wikipedia is wrong. It's just they have an agenda. Yeah, they definitely do. Is this oh, the yeah. is this the ashtray over here? Yes. Yeah, whatever you want. Okay. To do. How does? Oh, I'll need another one of these before I do that. <laughs> how does he? That's me. How does? Yeah, how do I handle people when they don't believe stone cold facts I'm presenting? Um, I've come to I've come to expect that that's to be the case because I'm a contrarian because I'm giving a controversial narrative which is mm-hmm. not bought into by the mainstream. I don't expect uh, anything that I present to be believed. It's a long term it's a long term project. You have mm. to keep going. I've been I've been attacked by archaeologists and their friends in the media. Uh, since the early 1990s, continuously. Whole TV programs have been made, BBC Horizon trying to trash my work. Wow. Um, so I don't, I don't expect them to believe, I expect them to disbelieve, and I yeah. expect them to try to make me look as bad as possible mm-hmm. and, to, and, and to try to get people not to pay attention mm-hmm. to my work. But my view is if I just keep going, and I'm not alone, mm-hmm. there are other people working in this field, great people who are working in this field, if, if, if we just keep going and keep putting out the contrary knowledge, mm-hmm. the contrary information, that gradually more and more people will take interest in it. And the history of science teaches that this is how knowledge changes. Um, it, it's very difficult to shift an established system of knowledge. It's very, it's very difficult to just to wipe it away yeah. and replace it with something new. It takes a gradual accumulation of evidence that mm-hmm. cannot be explained by the established theory. Mm. And that evidence has to keep on being put forward against all opposition, uh, despite all the attacks. You just have to keep on putting it forward. And, and eventually, uh, little by little, it will become clear to the those who hold power in the established theory that the theory is laughable, mm-hmm. uh, and that it and that it has to be replaced. So, so rather than, of course, I don't like it when people call me a pseudo scientist or mm-hmm. a pseudo archaeologist. I mean, it really pisses me off. Mm-hmm. I, I want to try and explain this. Yeah, explain. Um, which is which is a phrase. It's a phrase I often use. 
Okay, but I'm gonna, the reason I'm going to explain it is because it came up in a comment on something I'd posted on Facebook. I, somebody was puzzled by this phrase. Tell okay. me if it's puzzling. Okay. I say, I say, I am no more a pseudoscientist than a dolphin is a pseudo-fish. Okay, now, what I mean by that is that dolphins look like fish. But they're not. But they're not they're fish. Nervous. They swim in the same waters as fish. Mm -hmm. They may even have some of the same interests as fish. But they're not. But they're not fish, they're mammals. They're a totally different kind of creature. Mm. Um, and, and what I'm saying is, I am, I am not any kind of archaeologist, let alone a pseudo-archaeologist. I'm something else completely. I'm just basically a reporter. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a journalist. journalist. And, that's, and, and that's all I am. But then somebody, somebody commented, Joe Rogan tells me that I should never read comments. <laughs> Why? Because, because both, the positive ones and the, both the positive ones and the negative ones are bad for you. Yeah, they, they do. The positive ones inflate your ego and the negative ones make you depressed. Well, so that's should, just yin and yang. So you should be even. You should be open to that as well. Anyway, I still do look at comments from time to time. And, yeah. and, and so somebody commented, what does Hancock mean? Um, I'm no more a pseudo-archaeologist than a dolphin is a pseudo-fish. Is he talking about the dolphin fish? Um, it was completely misunderstood. It just went right over. There right is over a board. dolphin fish. Though. Yeah, it was, and, 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 and was I, by saying that, was I undermining my own theories? There's some things I just don't understand on social media. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm old school. I have not yet uh, got to use a cell phone. My thumbs and fingers just won't work with that little keyboard. Plus, there's so much shit to learn yeah. to make it work. There's all kinds of stuff you have to know. So I just, I just don't want to, I just don't want to use it. I want to, I want to stay um, as old school as possible. I can't actually remember how I got to this point, mm -hmm. but that's because of your dope, mic. <laughs> well, well, if it makes, if it makes you feel better, if it makes Probably. you feel better, I'm a professional athlete, and I don't. It's a different time, because Mike, you obviously didn't have to deal with that, like. Uh, Social media comments, people no. comment. So I'm an athlete, so now I deal with it a lot. People always like, you know, comment on my stuff. I hear about it in the paper. Yeah, yeah, you heard about it in the paper. Totally but you get people saying shit about you today. Huh? You, people are still saying shit about you today. And I'm still saying shit about them. Mm. Yeah. So the even playing even. field. But in your in your boxing career, social media was not was not a thing. No. Time. It came it came afterwards. Yeah. What's your feeling about that? Would it have been better if there was social media? No, there? I don't know. It would have been the same thing. People would have been mad. People would have been shooting people. Yeah. Yeah, back then it was just very violent. I, life wasn't worth shit in the 80s. Mm. It was a different world. But do you think it's worth shit today? Are things better? Oh, absolutely. I'm glad to hear absolutely. that. Absolutely. In the 80s, everybody was dying. Everybody died of drugs, mm -hmm. diseases, guns, knives. It was just... Murder row in the 80s. Drugs all passed oh, just destroyed a um, whole generation of families. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, no social media mm -hmm. at, that, at that time. Yeah. But I think your story is a fascinating story. Um, you're also a contrarian. Uh, you've also had to stand up against slings and arrows, and you've also had an iron will that has kept you going forward. That's the thing that many, many people write to me and, and say, what do I do to become a writer? And the answer is write. Mm. And be prepared to carry on writing and keep on going. And no, many, no matter how many times your manuscript or your idea gets rejected, and just keep on skin. going. Keep tough skin. Keep a thick skin, a tough skin, yeah. What do you want to tell the world about? See, right here, there's okay. millions and millions of people here, right? Well, And they want to know how can they talk to you again, what's happening with you, what you're doing. 
right there, talk to him. Big boy. Everybody in the world is watching you right now. Well, what I want to tell the world is, first of all, thank you, those in the world who read my books, for allowing me to lead a free life, mm. to not have to be beholden to anybody, to be investigate, able to investigate anything that I want to investigate. I couldn't get anywhere with my work if it weren't for the fact that people read and support my books. And it was true. That's what makes me free. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I'm enormously grateful for that. I'm, I'm, I'm enormously grateful for those, for those people who send me moral support and, 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 and psychic support at this time. And I know that there's a huge amount of love out there. And I wish tremendous. it could be given back. Tremendous. A, tremendous, a tremendous amount of love. And, and beyond that, what do I want to say to the world? It's a cliche, of course, but it's something that my wife, Santa, has taught me over the last 30 plus years, uh, that what really matters is love. Love is what uh, matters. And, awesome. and, and love is not, is not just a rosy tinted idea. Um, I've, seen, I've seen this with Santa. I'm, Santa and I um, have six children between right. us. Wow. Santa has Brady been married. Brady bunch. Uh, it goes bigger, we've got eight grandchildren. Yeah. Oh, Sa oh, Santa awesome. has been married once before and she brought two children from that marriage. And I was married twice before. I brought two children from my first marriage and two children from my second marriage. So what we have here are six children from three broken homes. Mm -hmm. Santa and I never made a child together, but Santa became an incredible mother to all of these six kids, some of whom, as you can imagine, initially were very resistant to her because they had a feeling of mistrust, but she just kept on giving love. And love is not rosy tinctures. Love is mm -hmm. effort. It's hard work. Mm -hmm. It's again and again being there for that person and giving and giving that giving that support. And I don't think I'd ever had a sense of of what love really meant in my life until I met the amazing woman who I'm pri privileged to spend my days with. Um, and I know that that's what matters, and it's the one thing that all human beings share, and that we can and that we can all give out. There doesn't have to be this hatred and fear and suspicion. Of course, we have our darker nature. Mm. Uh, of course, it keeps on coming up all the time, but, but, but it does with me. I'm, I'm full of error and constantly making mistakes. I, have, I, I think I may have mentioned this the last time we talked. I, I have a real problem with anger, I get, which, I, which I don't like myself for. I, get, I, can, I can get suddenly very angry and I, I can say cruel and hurtful things that I actually don't mean, and, and I've, been try, I've been trying to learn not to be that person and not, and not to do that, but I still haven't put that person completely, completely in the box. I've, I've, I've learned from my wife that love is what matters and that love is work and that love is giving uh, and that we're all capable of, of giving it to one another. And every ancient civilization knew that as well. <laughs> yeah, there you have it, folks. As Mike Tyson, I'm Sebastian Joseph Day. And this is Graham Hancock. Thank you so much for Thank joining you so us. Much. This, is this is amazing. This is amazing. This is amazing. So Thank you. This is Hot Boxing. Thank we out of here.